Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Two matches, of course, going on. On the other side of the world at the moment, New Zealand, England in Hamilton and a very interesting game in Adelaide where some records have been broken in the Australia-Pakistan day-night match. Just before we get into that, uh, just to say the Cricketer magazine special offer, don't forget that. If you're thinking about Christmas presents, A, buying a Cricketer magazine subscription is a useful Christmas present, but also if you go for a subscription this month, it costs about 40 quid, but for that you get a John Lewis £20 gift voucher or a copy of Alistair Cook's autobiography, you go to www.thecricketer.com forward slash Christmas and that special offer is there. So look out for it. Simon Mann, you're in Hamilton. I mean, England sort of getting into this game a bit better after two days. Uh, not as much of kind of leather chasing as in Mount Monganui, but then losing two late wickets in the day. Yeah, well, there couldn't be any more leather chasing, surely, than in Mount Monganui. 201 overs in the dirt for England there, 130 overs here. They really stuck at it. I think credit to England, they really stuck at it. The pitch is still good. I can totally understand their decision to bowl first. They wanted to try to exploit the the grass on the pitch and the, the early conditions they always knew it was going to be tough. It wasn't going to be a 150 all-out, 200 all-out sort of pitch. They knew that, and both sides knew that as well. It was just that the stats in New Zealand say you generally bowl first, the pitch gets better for batting as the match goes on, and now England have to, to make that happen. Now, they've lost a couple of early wickets. They, they did well to finish off the New Zealand innings, the last five wickets going down for 60, but it was it was very hard work again, and they... They lost a couple of wickets too. Well, Sibley's shot wasn't a great one, really. It was a ball he, you think he should have knocked away for runs. It was a ball on leg stump, which he missed, trying to clip it through mid-wicket. And then Denley nicked a ball on, on off stump through to the keeper. So disappointing end of the day for England. They stuck at it with the ball, and they, they worked really hard. And, I, you know, I think t- today, 200 for seven in 70 overs, in a way you couldn't have asked much more than that. And Stuart Broad took a few wickets. I noticed uh, quite a lot of short balls and Archer finally getting a couple late on as well. How, how, was, how do you assess England's bowling on a second flat pitch in a row? Well, it, it, it was really hard for them. Uh, they had to work extremely hard and there was an, a, a passage in the afternoon where it was 53 overs without a wicket. They did not take a wicket from seven minutes past 11 till half past three, 25 to four. It felt like same old, same old, BJ Watling digging in, blocking mainly and just picking off the odd bad ball. I mean, it was not a, a thing of beauty, really. It was, it was hard work for everyone that was there. I think, bat, well, for Watling himself, 
England's bowlers, fielders, spectators, commentators. Uh, you know, it, it was not that entertaining. But Stuart Broad just found something before tea. And what he did was he, he, he actually bowled from a, a yard further back. And it just surprised Wadding. It bounced a bit, took the shoulder of the bat, and he was caught in the gully. And from there, England began to make progress. Broad got another wicket with a short ball that was pulled down to Archer on the fine leg boundary. Archer took a wicket with a, a short ball. Actually, the short balls worked for England. And uh, Wokes bowled a ball that took the glove of Tim Southie, and he was caught behind. There was a fortunate wicket at the end where Wagner just clipped a, a low full toss to mid-wicket. England finally... Got a bit of good fortune. I mean, it's not easy out here. You know, it's the cook of a ball. The pitches are flat. And as matches tend to go on in New Zealand, you know, the, the scores actually increase in the second and third innings. And that, that's what England are, are banking on. Whether it'll happen or not, they're under a bit of pressure now. But someone's going to have to come out on the third day and play a big innings, basically. Someone like Joe Root, Ben Stokes, someone's going to have to get, not just 100, because Latham got 100 and they only got 375 New Zealand. Someone's going to have to get 150, 180, something like that, if England are to have a chance of winning there this game. There is a stat, actually, uh, which came out of the Australian match, that the figure of 376 more or less guarantees you're not going to lose a Test match. Apparently, anything above 376... And you tend to win a lot more test matches than you lose in the first innings. So New Zealand were, were spot on there. I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? You say that, that Stuart Broad bowled one there uh, from a 23 yards, sort of behind the, the crease kind of thing. I just think there's a lot lacking in, in ingenuity from bowlers generally. I mean, I've been watching the Australia-Pakistan game, Pakistan in the field for five sessions at least, uh, and, you know, just leather chasing again all the time, only took three wickets in that time. And some of these bowlers, they're, they're young and fairly inexperienced, but they show quite a lot of changes of pace and different styles when they're playing white ball cricket. But when they're playing a, te- a test match, you don't see any of that. You don't see Yorkers, you don't see slower balls, back of the handers slower ball bouncers, things like that. You just don't see any of that, or indeed a 23-yarder. It's, it's odd, isn't it, that, that the players can't... You know, batsmen have converted many of the skills yeah. from T20 into test cricket, which is where, you know, Stokes was able to play that amazing innings at Headingley, for instance. But bowlers don't seem to have done that. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. I mean, Stuart Broad was saying after today's play, you know, they sort of had to find different ways of of taking wickets, trying different things. And One of the tactics was to bowl short with men back. We've seen that quite a bit in the series. Perhaps they went to to it a bit quickly at the the Bay Oval. Uh, You know, he said top of off stump out here just doesn't seem to work. You know, batsmen do not nick off. So you have to be creative as a bowler. I'm not quite sure why that is actually, Oz, why we don't see more of the... The white ball skills in in Test cricket. What, what's your theory on that? Well, I don't know. Is it a mindset thing? You know that the, the the coaches sort of say, right, you know, top of off stump, hit the length, all that kind of bowl in the right areas kind of approach. That cliche, I absolutely hate. And maybe bowlers are just so conditioned to bowling to that plan that they can't bring those white ball skills in. But you know, when you've been bowling for a session and you haven't taken a wicket, surely 
it, it makes sense to, to try the kind of things that cause batsmen to mistime the ball. I mean, in this epic innings that David Warner played today, he played some reverse sweeps. He went outside leg stump and sort of sliced it over cover a couple of times. You know, even in a mammoth innings like that, there were elements of T20, but that never appeared when the bowlers were, were operating. I, I don't really understand it, actually. I, I, you know, York, the Yorker is a ball that is almost sort of become defunct in, in test cricket. And yet, obviously, in one-day cricket, if you hadn't got a Yorker, as a quick bowler anyway, you don't you don't get a game. So I, I think it's a real area of concern, and bowlers on flat wickets need to use the crease better. You know, I, I mean, it was kind of... An, it annoyed me slightly watching Pakistan playing against uh, Australia. We saw the dominance of Stuart Broad round the wicket to David Warner in the, in the ashes, and yet... The Pakistanis sort of largely refused to go round the wicket to start with against Warner in both test matches. Eventually they did try it. But I don't know what these coaches are doing, applying their bowlers' minds to a test match and maybe conditioning them to bowl in, in too regimented a way. Well, one thing, if you think about it, in, in white ball cricket, the batsman's got to come at you, hasn't he? Whereas in test cricket, they can just sit in. I mean, with BJ Watling, for example, it's, it's really difficult to... Uh, find a strategy to dislodge him because he's not taking any risks. It's, it's really no frills cricket. The emphasis on defence, but in, in T20 especially, batsmen are coming at you the whole time. 50 over cricket, increasingly they're, they're coming at you. So bowlers do have to mix it up a bit more. Whereas in, in Test cricket, you don't get that. So you, you know, bowlers don't have to. The batsmen don't have to attack the bowlers. That, you know, that might be one reason why all those variations and don't feel quite so necessary. Of course, the other thing as well is in, in, in test matches in England, uh, the, the Duke's ball does, a lot, does enough for the bowlers. So you don't need all those variations, I suppose, when you come abroad. And when you play in New Zealand in particular, where the pitches are really flat... You know, then you then you realise how tough it is and how much more you you, you need to improvise. And that one thing Stuart Broad actually was saying the other day was, you know, I was talking about the Cookerbra ball and, and, and pitches overseas. He said, well, you know, if you play in South Africa, for example, the Cookerbra ball is fine. You know, you get you, it can it can aid you. you. You get pace and bounce in South Africa. So it's you know different conditions challenge you in in different ways and is about adapting. And, and clearly, it's you know it's it's not been easy for England here. And clearly, it's been it's been so hard for Pakistan in Australia. Australia, but Australia at home. I mean, you know that that's one of the toughest places to win, isn't it? And you know, India away, Australia away, perhaps even England away as well. You know, those those are really hard conditions uh, to win in their their alien conditions. And and sometimes, well, often in sport, you know, the better team wins. It does, you can almost try everything. You can try all sorts of tactics, and the better team will come out on top. One, one question, I, a burning question, I have. Uh, for you from Hamilton is we don't I haven't been watching the Australia game here I haven't had the pictures is why did Tim Payne declare on David Warner on 335 from, from a distance it looked like the world record was on Brian Lara might have been getting a bit fidgety uh, looking on I was there when he when he broke his world record in Antigua of course the, the the big bonus he had then was that he was the captain so he he chose when to declare whereas Tim Payne declared on David Warner, explain yours. I will do after a short break. Yeah, well, I've been watching the Pakistan-Australia game for two days in Adelaide and you asked about Tim Payne and why he declared on David Warner on 335. 
I think actually that it was uh, to, largely to win the game. Uh, the evening shadows were lengthening. The time to bowl, theoretically, in these day-night games is is twilight. And he thought, well, we've got enough runs. We've got five, 589. Uh, and, you know, Warner will take another, you know, 45 minutes if he gets there to, to get to 400. Uh, it, the main thing is about winning the game. The forecast for the next day and a half isn't great. And particularly, they wanted to bowl in twilight uh, today and then, you know, make inroads into the Pakistan batting maybe then go and bat themselves on the third day and then bowl in twilight again. So that was the, the overall theory uh, that, that Tim Payne applied. I mean, it's an amazing thing to watch, actually, uh, the way that David Warner, I was going to say ground out 335, but he didn't, actually. It was incredibly fluent, his innings. In fact, I looked up his strike rate compared to Lara in his 400, and it was a lot quicker Warner was scoring at, at a rate of 80 per 100 balls, whereas Lara only at 68. And you think of Lara as being a very fluent, dashing sort of stylist, even in a long innings like that, but Warner was quicker. His stamina, because of a, a lot of the time the, the running between the wickets was one of the features of his innings, the stamina he showed was incredible. The the pushing for, for twos and threes, often running other people's runs, not just his own. Uh, several times he had to jump three times into the air to celebrate milestones, 100, 200 and 300. And his leap got higher and higher each time, uh, not just in the exaltation of what he'd achieved, but just in this sort of adrenaline that obviously w- was keeping him going. I thought it was it was quite sporting, actually, that... The Australians did declare at that point it was a forlorn experience for the Pakistanis bowling on that track. I mean, what what sort of annoys me slightly is that teams do come to Australia without really preparing themselves properly, mentally or selectorally-wise as either. I mean, to pick debutant fast bowlers who've hardly played any first-class cricket, never never mind test cricket, just seems a total mistake. Yasir Shah averages 84 in test cricket in Australia, and and yet they're still banking on him as the fourth bowler. So they they came into this game with Shaheen Afridi, uh, who's an excellent prospect but has hardly any experience, Mohamed Abbas, who was dropped strangely for the first test, but doesn't really quite have the skills to make the ball move around in Australia. He relies too much on seam movement. It isn't all that much pace. And then a debutant as the third seamer, Mohamed Musa, plus Yashir Shah, plus a couple of occasional spinners. Well, even top-line spinners struggle in Australia, never mind occasional spinners. So they did get their selections, their planning for this tour completely wrong, Pakistan. But having said that, it was an amazing day of of record-breaking, not just at David Warner's Triple 100, which was the first Triple 100 ever made at the Adelaide Oval in a Test match, overtaking the great Don Bradman's 299 not-out, Also, it was the second highest score ever made by an Australian, so Warner overtook the 3-3-4 made both by Bradman and then Mark Taylor. Uh, So he was second only in the end. He's second only in the end to to Matthew Hayden's 380 against Zimbabwe. And actually, it was quite nice that Mark Taylor was there 
at the ground applauded Warner when he went past his own score. It's a nice story, actually, the Taylor one, because he got to 3-3-4 and knew it was Bradman's highest score, so didn't want to go past it, so declared on himself, actually, uh, about, what, 15 years ago or so. Uh, and then it was actually it was Matthew Hayden who ruined that by then going past both of them and, and, and posting Australia's highest ever individual score. So uh, Warner's now in second place... I think it was the right decision. And, and sorry, talking of um, records, also today, Steve Smith, who has played only a sort of small role in in the match, uh, got, got to 36 uh, before a wild slog cost him his wicket. But he has become the fastest ever to 7,000 test runs. And I've got the list of, of batsmen here uh, that, that made 7,000 test runs in, in speedy time. He's 10 tests quicker than Wally Hammond or Verenda Saywag, 15 tests quicker than Sachin Tendulkar, uh, 9 tests quicker than Garfield Sobers, uh, 24 tests quicker than Viv Richards getting to 7,000 test runs. So, an amazing performance by Steve Smith in such a short space of time to get past the 7,000 runs. Uh, of course, the one guy he can't eclipse in terms of scoring rate is Bradman himself, who's not on that 7,000 run list because he fell four runs short. It's been great at Pakistan because they've actually found a way, haven't they, really, of limiting Smith in this series. And basically, the way they've found of doing it is just not letting him bat. <laughs> you know, they don't take enough don't take enough wickets to, to get him in. Yeah, the key, the key to, to getting Smith out is is only allow him in at three hundred and fifty for two, and then he doesn't know what yeah. to do. He's so sort of overstimulated and almost exhausted by watching the game and kind of thinking about his innings for several hours that by the time he gets out there, he's completely spent. Yeah, it's a bit different from Stuart Broad nipping out uh, David Warner in, in Warner averaging nights. It's been a remarkable transformation, and not surprising, I have to say. Warner in Australia, he averages about 61. Elsewhere, is, you know, much, much lower. The, the, the gulf is, is enormous between home and away with Warner. Just, just on, the, on the record, though, Yoz, was there a sort of sense in the crowd? People, were people getting excited that, you know, that, he, that a world record could be on, or did, did they set? Did they sense a declaration uh, was coming? Uh, good question. Uh, Shane Warne was getting very excited on commentary, talking about the 400 constantly from the st- stage when Warner was on about 270. So, oh, the 400's in danger here when Warner was about 270. But I think with the crowd, they were just enjoying Warner's rehabilitation. I mean, it is an amazing story of redemption, isn't it, really? from Not only from the Ashes, uh, where he averaged nine, but, but of course from the Sandpaper Gate scandal as well of 18 months ago, uh, a man in disgrace. And actually, if you look at his scores, since the, he came back into the side this summer in Australia, they've played six T20s and two test matches, and Warner has scored, and I just added it up, actually, he's scored 776 runs in those T20 games and the two test matches, and he's been dismissed twice. So his average in this summer of international cricket in Australia is 338. It's just incredible, isn't it? Absolutely phenomenal. Um... In a, in a way, no surprise. I mean, well, those, those huge numbers are a, a bit of a surprise because I mean, you can never predict that. But he, he's just such a, an effective player in Australian conditions. He, he really is. And uh, England would be hoping that by the time they get there in, what, two and a half years' time, whatever it is, or three years' time for the next Ashes series, that he'll, he'll be a bit over the hill and, uh, you know, the, the, his career might be in a dip because if, if he's not, it's him and Smith and, and Labuschagne, whoever else they discover, it's going to be uh, very 
tough for them, despite that sort of three-year plan they've got to try to uh, win back the, the to win back the Ashes. Um, I mean, I was there when Lara. Just as a quick story, actually, about uh, you mentioned Matthew Hayden when Lara broke the record. I've sort of told this story before, but it's, it's always worth uh, retelling. I, I remember doing a, an interview for an Australian. A television station in, in Queensland uh, after Lara had broken the record. One of the journalists there said to me, do you know if Matthew Hayden has spoken to Brian Lara yet? And I said, well, I you know, absolutely don't know because uh, you know, Lara's been wrapped up in, in breaking the record and then being out in the field because obviously they declared. And then on the, the phone I was using, the mobile phone I was using about an hour or so later, two hours later, it rang. And there was an Australian voice on the end of the phone. And it said, uh, you know, this is, this is Matthew. G'day, this is, this is Matthew Hayden. And uh, I didn't believe him. I thought it was someone, um, you know, pulling my leg. And I put the phone down on him. Uh, and, <laughs> of course, he, he rang back. And eventually, uh, at the end of the play, I actually took the phone that Matthew Hayden was phoning on, gave it to Brian Lara in the West Indies dressing room, went into the West Indies dressing room. Viv Richards, who was the coach, then invited me in and spoke to Brian Lara and gave him the phone. And he sat down and had a chat with Matthew Hayden, who, who congratulated him. But... Um, it was it was close to a situation where I gave Matthew Hayden the bums rush because I just simply didn't believe he was on the other end of the phone. <laughs> Obviously, lots of enthusiasm still for Test cricket in Australia. A big crowd today in Adelaide, round about thirty five thousand. Even though it's a bit of a one sided match and a one sided series, how about uh, the the feelings about Test cricket in New Zealand? You know, I, I worry about tests generally. I mean, firstly, it annoys me that the, the test series in New Zealand isn't counting in the World Test Championship. Secondly, it annoys me that these series are two test series. I mean, I think two test series should be banned. I think they're absolutely ludicrous. And, and you know, what, what is the enthusiasm for test cricket like in New Zealand from your recent experience? Yeah, I mean, the crowds out here have been quite good. I mean, Mount Monganui for the... The first Test match, the crowds were, I think, pretty good for you know for New Zealand. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a huge population here for a start, and rugby is king out here. But I just sense that New Zealand doing well in the World Cup has has lifted interest. I, d- I don't think we're ever going to get huge crowds, but the, playing on grounds where the, you know the grassy banks, it's not stadiums has has brought people out the t20 series was well supported apart from in wellington which actually you know a crowd in that stadium in wellington rather rattles around crowds in in the bay oval in mount mongany were, were very good for five days it helps of course that lots of england supporters have come out here and, and you know that gives it a really good atmosphere and that you know the crowds here have been reasonable i don't think you're going to have people you're queuing around the block necessarily to get into uh, grounds in new zealand uh, but the I profile, think, I mean, you know, media coverage, what's that been like? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's on it's on Sky Television here. It's, it's on you know, ball by ball coverage on the radio. It's in the newspaper. I, I always feel that a tour, that, you know, a tour of New Zealand always feels, I think, more low key than perhaps any other tour. But the West Indies now, actually, I feel you, when you go to the West Indies, the interest isn't quite there for the cricket. Uh, white ball, yes, a little bit. Uh, T20, yes, but test matches, no. But, you know, the thing is, of course, lots of England supporters go to watch in the West Indies. But I, I always feel, that, yeah, a, a tour of New Zealand is, is quite low-key. And I, I think they accept that, that, you know, they they they, they build from a, a relatively low base. They, they do, they've done extraordinarily well, actually, from, in terms of, you know, the number of players that play and the, the level that they've achieved. You know, they, they really have. 
uh, when you consider that, for example, 1946 to 1973, Australia didn't play them. And gradually, in my, in my lifetime, they, as a team, they, they built and built and built. So they are you know, really competitive. They're number two in the ICC test rankings at the moment. And, you know, of course, they reached the World Cup final. They're, they're, you know, they're, a, they're a really competitive side. And you know, someone like Daryl Mitchell came in today. No, no Colin de Grand home. He's injured. Daryl Mitchell comes in, 73 on his debut. You know, mature cricketer, 28 years of age, slotted in, uh, played very well. Uh, you know, they're a, they're a really competitive side. I don't think they're ever going to have, ever going to have huge crowds, except perhaps you know for the really big matches. Um, and I was there at Eden Park when the World Cup semi-final 2015, huge crowd. You know, that that is the sort of occasion that's going to get everyone's uh, juices flowing out here. But t- test match. Uh, you know, g- goodish crowds, but not that sort of not that sort of bursting at the seams crowds. You, you know, you see some, you know, see in England, for example, because it's good to see the Australians really supporting it, and actually also to see the players so up for it as well. Warner clearly really exultant after that landmark that he achieved today. Remember, he's a guy that came through the T Twenty system and has now made twenty four. Test hundreds and the triple hundred that, that, that is now the, the the feather in his cap kind of thing, and a younger player like Marnus Labashain who made a, a maiden hundred in that first test at the Gabba, followed it up with another hundred here. Very very accomplished innings as well, uh, batting at number three. And interestingly, you know, clearly a, a young guy really focused on playing the long format, even though he's got the skills to play the shorter format. And apparently he practices quite a lot by using a surfboard to bounce balls off with his mates. They skim balls off a surfboard and you have to sort of fend them off. Presumably this is a tennis ball rather than a a hard ball. But it's just good to hear that there are players using their imagination to try and hone their skills for the longer format. Yeah, you think Don Bradman, what was it, famously used to hit? Stump and a golf ball and a water tank. Yeah, well, it, it it sharpens up your hand-eye coordination, doesn't it? And uh, Labuschagne's an interesting one, isn't it? I, you you wonder with Labuschagne what would have happened if Joffre Archer hadn't hit Steve Smith during the Lords yeah, Test match. That's you know, right. Whether, you know when he would have got a chance, whether he would have got a chance during the Ashes series. He he might not have done. He was on the sidelines until that game, and then suddenly came in, did well, and then he has, he has not looked back since. No, in fact, he is the leading test run scorer in 2019, amazingly. He's got over 800 runs, uh, even uh, overtaken Steve Smith now. So uh, really someone to to look out for in the future and just a very, very determined character. The uh, Adelaide Oval has been populated today, by the way, by lots of people dressed in the the Richie Benno uh, cream blazer and grey wig with their foam microphones, Channel 9 microphones. It's been Richie Day. It's Richie Day at almost every test ground in Australia now, one of the days. You get about 200 of them all dressed as Richie Benno. So fantastic to see. What a great man. What a huge loss he has been to the world of cricket and the world of commentary. OK, well, that's it for today. Uh, we'll look back at the remainder of these test matches in the next couple of days. Thanks for listening.
Sports Social Podcast Network.